Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. They generally limit the term. If they were going to do one, they generally would be a year or two years. So every year or two, we're having to get a new valuation on the property and new loan documents and things like that. Um, I'd say we generally would prefer a term. If it's a one-time need, we'd rather see that than kind of a floating checkbook on an investment property. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com, and in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the Best Ever Conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. With us today, Mike Shabline. How you doing, Mike? Doing great. Well, I'm glad to hear that. So, best ever listeners, if you listen to it on the podcast or watch it on YouTube, come visit us in Cincinnati. It's bestevercincy.com. We meet the last Tuesday of every month, except for December. I don't think we're going to do December. But last Tuesday of every month, come hang out. You can go to bestevercincy.com. We've got people from all over the Midwest. So, Introducing Mike. Mike is the vice president. He's a designated commercial real estate specialist, community banking at U.S. Bank. Did I say that right? You did. It's a mouthful. It is mouthful. That's all right. He has almost 20 years of experience in commercial real estate. He's underwritten around $300 million worth of loans based in Cincinnati, Ohio. So with that being said, Mike, you want to give the best ever listeners and everyone hanging out a little bit about your background and your current focus? Sure. Well-rounded background. I started in banking 30 years ago as a teller during college and progressed up to a branch manager and then got into some lending, so some 
consumer lending and some mortgage lending, residential. This is with the small savings and loan that no longer exists. They were bought. In 1999, I went to Fifth Third Bank and was in their commercial credit area for two years. And then in 2001, I transitioned into commercial real estate. Started downtown in the tower and then ended up working in Butler County off the Union Center highway exit. And in 2007, I left Fifth Third and came to U.S. Bank, and I've been there since. I am in Butler County still, in Hamilton, and we can talk about what makes that difference than being in Cincinnati, per se. I'm not actually part of the group or the team that is Cincinnati Metro Banking for U.S. Bank. I'm part of community banking which means my peers are not so much in Cincinnati or St. Louis or Seattle. They're more in Topeka, Kansas and South Dakota and more of the outside of the metropolitan areas. So what is a challenge, I guess, most of my clientele is within the 275 belt loop as to not trip over my compatriots with U.S. Bank in Cincinnati. You mentioned designated real estate specialists. So there are two of those in community banking in the state of Ohio, me and then another gentleman who's up in Toledo. There is one real estate lender in downtown Cincinnati who does only real estate and she looks generally at only things 20, 25 million dollars and more. So those are big projects. I look at projects generally from 250,000 up to 5 million, although I can do projects of any size. It just is that most of the deals that I come across are in that 250000 to 5 maybe $7, 8000000 million range. There are, as far as I know, somewhere between 40 and 50 U.S. bank business bankers around Cincinnati. They can do real estate deals. They are not real estate specialists, so they can do financing for a company for a line of credit, or they can do a loan to buy an apartment building. They're general lenders. I am specifically real estate. I think the other differentiation would be types of deals. I will do probably deals that could be a little more complex or deals with developers, construction loans. That definitely is a specialty that you may not see the business banker do so much but I've been doing real estate now for 18 years and I really enjoy it and that's probably what I'm going to do until I retire. What's the last deal you did? Unfortunately it's been a while. It's been a very competitive market. Now. What's a while? A couple months working on a couple right now but it is very very competitive out there and that should be something we touch on but the last deal I did was for a project in Over the Rhine that is mixed use retail on the first floor and uh, developing condos for sale on the upper floors. And when you underwrite that, what are some important things that you look at? That kind of a deal, we place a little more weight on our guarantors, our sponsors, who's behind the deal, what their personal liquidity and other sources of income are more so than say buying a strip center where you're placing your underwriting weight more on the tenants and the leases and underwriting that cash flow. This one again is construction. They did have one 
COI for the retail space, but all of the residential units are being built to sell with no identified buyers. So again, we're looking real hard at our sponsors and, and what their ability is to carry this along if they don't sell quickly. COI stands for? I'm sorry, I meant LOI. <laughs> okay, got it, got it, got it. And that's in lieu of a lease if we have a letter of interest with approximate terms and that kind of thing will generally start that for the underwriting process. Obviously, if someone brings us a lease that's already executed, even better, but nine times out of ten on a new construction deal, it's more prospects and letters of interest versus hard leases. And you said that kind of deal, we look more at the borrower. Is it because it's more of a speculative deal Correct. and not currently yes. cash flowing? So anything that we can underwrite the cash flow, again, say multifamily, we have years of financials and we have a rent roll, we feel like we can do a pretty good job underwriting and projecting how that may service the debt. Again, with the strip center with leases and cash flow, we can underwrite that. When you have something that's more speculative in nature, construction, um, you're looking at market rates out there and you're coming up with a pro forma, but that pro forma, it's only as good as the research you're doing. And, Again, when you're getting into speculative underwriting, then you're gonna look more at your secondary source, which is your guarantor. And so when we look at the guarantor, the first thing we're looking at is liquidity. So we'll collect a personal financial statement and what they note as liquid accounts. So checking, savings, investments that can be easily liquidated, things like that. We'll get statements to correspond to those figures. What's the liquidity typically required? I'm sure it varies. Yeah, this is definitely more an art than a science. I'd say when you have a construction deal, a speculative deal, we're going to look for a little higher proportion, say 25% or 30%, or it depends on the deal of what the debt is. Versus after the deposit. Yes, yes. And we're also looking at their other personal and other commercial exposures. So... At the end of the day, again, it's art more than science, but the larger the deal and the stronger the cash flow, we tend to relax a little bit on what we're looking for with liquidity, but we still want to see it. And that'll be part of maybe what we might want to touch on with best ever advice. As far as I would say best ever advice is look at your lender like your partner. When you're buying a multifamily at 80% loan to value. We're in this thing at 80% with your 20% and we want to know every bit about that project as much as you would. So we will ask a lot of questions and we'll ask for a lot of information up front, but look at it more as a partner, not, oh, it's the bank asking me for more stuff and they never stop asking questions. Oh, we ask a lot of questions because we care and because we want to know. You know. I want to be able to answer questions that are put to me if we get financials in that show the property's not doing as well as we thought it might, you know, I want to know why. Well, if I'm not really paying attention and I'm not asking you questions as we go, it's not going to help me explain your case to the folks on my end on the credit side that need to answer to people above them on the audit and the examiner side. So it's a partnership, and we don't ask for things we don't need just to ask you for more stuff. <laughs> we ask for it because we think that gives us the ability to understand you a little better, understand your business, and, and be able to present that more. Because at the end of the day, I'm your advocate. I'm the one that's talking to the credit people and the examiners and 
and everybody else. And if I do a lousy job of presenting your situation, it all flows downhill. We take this behind the scenes. A lot of people in the room have probably gone through the process of getting a commercial loan, and some are strictly focused on residential. But I think regardless, it would be good to know when your company, when U.S. Bank has asked all the initial questions and received the information, we take us behind the scenes and let us know what are some typical follow-up questions that people you report to are asking you that you're having to field. That is a good question. Well, and let's spread the curtain. There's no Wizard of Oz here. The questions and the information on a commercial loan aren't just upfront at purchase hey, I gave it to you, you approved it, we closed the loan, we're good. Most of the time, and some of it's driven by the size of the loan and what our bank's policy is as far as ongoing underwriting requirements, but on deals of size and larger, we have what are called annual reviews. And you have reporting requirements in your loan documents. So every year, I'm probably collecting a personal financial statement. I'm collecting liquidity verification, <coughs> tax returns, personal, your business returns, K-1s, all kinds of things. And it just generally will elicit ongoing questions. Anything that changes substantially year to year Part of that requirement with the annual reviews is we're pulling updated credit reports. So we're looking at not only the property or the properties and how they're performing relative to how we initially underwrote them, but we're also looking at your personal situation. If there's any significant changes, we're asking those questions. So it's definitely not ask it all once and maybe some follow-up and then we're done. It, it can be an annual process. And even in some cases, if it's a large enough deal, we're collecting quarterly financials, not so much on you, but your property. So quarterly P&Ls and rent rolls. We're obviously looking at occupancy on multifamilies. If we see significant changes there, more units vacant, we see costs that we've underwritten for a period of time spike. Maybe there was a water leak or things that we're going to ask about, you know, and, and generally Properties don't perform like your one-time pro forma underwriting forever. There's always going to be changes. I'd say the other thing is with loan documentation, again, some of it's dependent on deal size, but there may be performance measurement in there, like you have to hit a certain debt service coverage. That could be a quarterly measurement. It could just be a once a year. A lot of times, for various reasons, the property may not hit that during the term of the loan. What happens? Well, that's a real thing, right? So what happens is if, if it's a true measurement and it didn't work, but we can get our arms around why and determine it's not necessarily an ongoing issue that can't be rectified, maybe one-time issue, you're going to get a default letter issued with waiver. So we'll waive the default, but you're going to get that letter. It looks kind of onerous. We're quoting the language in the loan documents that say, hey, this is what it was supposed to do, and it didn't meet that measurement. So we're putting you on notice kind of thing, but we'll waive it. If we can't get our arms around it, and you can't help us get your arms around it, well, we're having a hard time filling unit for whatever reason. Well, you may get a default letter without waiver. And then we start having very regular internal discussions about your deal, and we'll amp up the question asking and probably ask for more 
frequent financial reporting than you have provided in the past. And we'll monitor it very closely until it either improves or we get to a point where it just isn't going to get better and it's not performing and, and you know, we got to have discussions about can we pay this down some or do we have to send this to folks that are going to I call it the workout group, but those are real folks that all they do is monitor these accounts until the loans mature. And at that point, they either help the client find a way to get that note renewed and meet terms that it's got to meet, or they help the client find a new bank. That's real. And what are those internal conversations like whenever you all are talking about a deal that's not performing and you can't get your arms around it? And what makes it, I guess, more real is that we actually have a higher level credit approver on our floor in Hamilton. So they're not necessarily located everywhere. We just happen to have one right in the building and he'll, he'll come down the hall and talk about it, which is good. But those conversations, I think they want to see some time frames given to things. They don't want to just hear, well, we'll have conversation. They want to say, okay, within 30 days, this is what I want to see, or I want you to report back and say that you've had this site. It's more defined, I guess, than, than when something's maybe struggling but hasn't quite hit that radar of, wow, it's not performing. And then on the acquisition side, after a potential borrower has submitted all the information and you all have received it, what are some typical follow-up questions that are asked for whatever reason. You know, what I found that more so on the smaller, and when I say smaller, I just mean we look at deals of various sizes. They can be a deal to buy a six unit. It could be a deal to buy a 200 unit. But what I tend to find is more on the smaller deals where maybe the current owner, the seller, maybe they have other properties and maybe they do their own tax returns and maybe they load up expenses that aren't necessarily related to that property on that schedule E or things like that, that's going to require more question and understanding, well, what's really, I see a lot of driving expenses or meals and entertainment and stuff like that for a local, what, what is that? Getting our arms around what's a real expense for the property versus what's somebody's personal expense. You don't really see that so much on the larger deals. Those are generally underwritten to where you know what you're looking at. So on those deals, I guess the challenge on the bigger ones, a lot in this environment is that it's such a seller's market. Properties are so hot that a property that's maybe not performed so good in the past gets a strong three months and all of a sudden the broker's underwriting a trailing three months and trying to sell you this is what it is. Okay, that's what it is for the last three months. That's not what it was for the last 10 years. So then we're trying to get a sense of what's a reasonable underwriting. It may not be the trailing three, but maybe it is definitely, and there are reasons why it has improved. And find a way to underwrite it that makes sense for, for us, uh, the bank, as well as the client when they're putting an offer in. Because, you know, uh, again, it's, it is a seller's market, and, and a lot of properties are getting multiple bids. What, if any, scenario would you all underwrite to the trailing three months? Mm. More so, maybe it was a distressed property that has been renovated and retenanted, and hey, we got this thing up and going, and we can get our arms around what are renovation expenses, and we can see the sub-market where that property is, say it's generally at 90 to 95% occupancy, and their prior couple years were in the 
50s and 60s while they were emptying it out to redo units. And so th there's usually a story behind that, and we'll underwrite to that story if we can understand it and, and make sense of it. So let's take a step back, and for anyone who has not gotten a commercial loan but is plans on getting one in the future, what are the things they need to keep in mind in order to be approved for a commercial loan when they're used to residential? Okay. We talked about liquidity a little bit. Yeah, so definitely liquidity. 80% loan to value on a multifamily is fairly aggressive. It's a standard. We don't necessarily want to see, yes, we want the bank to do 80%, but I'm going to get 15% as a seller held second, and I'm going to put 5% into it. We want to see that you're putting the necessary equity in this to, on the commercial side. Now, I know on, on the residential side, there are still programs out there for home buyers for 3% down, 5% down, 10% down, that kind of thing. We generally want to see 20% down. Now, you may have partners in this deal. You may have investors in the deal. So you may show me on your personal financial statement you could put the 20% down, but you're not necessarily doing that. You may have investors that are putting in cash. They aren't going to sign guarantees, but that's how you're going to get to your 20%. Those are all things we need to understand. We need full tax returns. We don't just want page one and page two. We want all the schedules. We want the K-1s. I don't care if it's 300 pages long. You can email them, and we electronically store them. So full returns, full information, personal financial statements, really take your time. Do a good personal financial statement. Don't just blow through it and, hey, the bank needs to see a little liquidity. I'll put some of that on there. Let us know what you got. Not at the end of the day we're needing that because we're trying to figure out how we're going to turn the upside down and shake out the quarters and the nickels if we have to. I haven't had to do a workout deal at U.S. Bank in 13 years. It's cyclical. It may have a period for whatever reason where it struggles. You'll get a little more latitude from the credit folks when they know we have a good, complete personal financial statement and we understand your capabilities to pull that deal along while you're fixing it versus the one that doesn't show us everything and we're like, well, our margin for error isn't very much, then they start getting a little more nervous. On the personal financial statement, you mentioned I think 25 to 30% liquidity for new construction. What would be liquidity yeah. for? Yeah, what, what I would tell you is there's no magic formula to that. It really all depends upon... What's minimum? Again, no magic formula. No um, minimum? No minimum no. liquidity? Like, you obviously have to have enough to put the equity in that we need, and then we generally want to see that you have at least another equal amount of that. So if you put 20% in on $100,000, you'd probably like to see you still have $20,000 after that to account for one-time expenses or things you weren't necessarily thinking would happen, that kind of thing. But a lot of it is driven by the size of the deal. Do you have other partners in the deal? Do you have a bunch of other commercial loans? And how are those loans performing? If those other loans aren't performing well, we're probably going to want to see more than if you have a lot of commercial loans and they're all cash flowing at two times. This will be the first one. This will be the first one. So we don't want to see that you're putting every nickel you have into that down payment and you have nothing sitting there in reserve. You need to have reserves. You need to expect the unexpected. You need to expect that you're going to have that 20-year roof on there. All of a sudden, it's not what you thought it was and it's a major expense. So. 
again, I'm not going to put a percentage to it, but I'm going to say we're always looking that you're going to have reserves. If you don't have reserves, we're going to need to find another way to get you to that down payment because we're not going to, as a bank, approve a deal where you're putting every nickel in and have no reserves. Same answer to net worth? Net, net worth, we have a lot of clients with large net worths. But What's a large net worth? In your world. It's all relative. You can have a million dollar net worth that's full of liquidity. I consider that a big net worth. Your million dollar net worth is yes. a little bit of property, but it's $700,000 right. of cash. Yeah. And we got the $25 million net worth person that has all kinds of real estate and has about $10,000 in cash. That one makes me nervous. Any of those properties go the wrong way, they, they don't have the reserves, they're having to to either leverage their other properties or get investors, whereas that guy with the lesser net worth, very liquid, that makes us feel good. What are your thoughts on a rule of thumb, 10% liquidity, 100% net worth? Just a framework to throw it out there. You're just gonna like pin me down. Well, just, just, just like your people like deadlines, like yeah. when you're doing the workouts. There's a I lot like of have things. Some sort of. I can tell you there are all kinds of things in our commercial loan policy, and I can quote you every ratio and percentage and what we want to see on every type of property. That's not something that's actually covered in there. There's nothing in our commercial loan policy that says they need to have this net worth or this amount of liquidity. It's completely something that the credit approver, it's arbitrary and an art. It is an art and a science. Isn't totally it? an art. Yeah. There's nothing that's defined. Having said that, I guess I'll go back to the one with the high net worth and no liquidity is going to get scrutinized a little more than the one with the much lower net worth, but it's a high percentage of liquidity. That one can withstand some bumps. The other one's going to have to leverage something to do that, and that requires, if it's not our loan, it's somebody else's loan, they have to leverage that requires that other lender being okay with it. So, um, so good as I can do for you. Fair enough. I appreciate that. What are some no-goes for you? It's flexible. That's a good question, though. But, but, U.S. Bank has a lot of no-goes. Okay. <laughs> Makes my box a little smaller than I'd like it to be, but we generally are only going to work with regional borrowers, buyers, investors. So regional, I can stretch those bounds, but realistically, say within two or three hours of greater Cincinnati Beltway, that's where our borrower has to be located. We're all about where our borrower is. If you're in Northern Kentucky or you're in Northern Butler County or you're out in Eastern Indiana or out east of Batavia, you're in my market. If you're up towards Columbus, you're probably still in my market, but we're gonna follow you because we can get to you easily. I can meet with you on a day's notice and drive up and see you. Property has to be in that area too? No. So we'll follow you, Joe, if you're buying a property in Florida, I'll follow you and do that property in Florida. If it underwrites and it cash flows and we can get our arms around that market. The no-go is I can be looking out of my office window at the building across the street and somebody from California buys it, I can't finance that. Now I could refer it to US Bank of California, but they generally don't get that excited about right. doing that themselves. So what's the why challenge? Is that dollar size, dollar amount, or just? Yeah, sometimes it's dollar size, sometimes it's, yeah, I know by policy the guy in California knows he could do it, but California is a big state. They don't really know that client. It's not a large deal in not Hamilton, Ohio, not worth their effort. They don't think they can understand that market. 
uh, cap rate in Hamilton, Ohio is not the cap rate in Los Angeles. It, it's a lot of different things going on there. So as a lender, philosophically, that's always a challenge for me because if I'm looking outside at that building across the street, I know the real estate market in Hamilton, Ohio. I know what's driving things. I get that property, but if that borrower is not local to me, I can't do it. And conversely, I don't understand sometimes why I may know you great and I have full confidence in you and you're telling me this property in Florida is a great deal and I don't know that real estate market and, and that concerns me, but in theory I can do that. So out-of-market borrower, no-go. Second bank financing behind this, no-go. We don't do that as far as no-goes. It's not so much, the other no-go I would say is for us, it's recourse. We do not do non-recourse. If the guarantor, the member, the borrower, you know, the, that person is not willing to sign the personal guarantee, well, we're not doing the non-recourse loan. And there's, it's very easy on larger properties that cash flow, non-recourse loans are all over the place. That's just something philosophically we don't do. It's more of a relationship-based thing and the bank, frankly, wanting to have a second source of coming back if the property doesn't work mm -hmm. versus the non-recourse loan where you can hand over the keys and you're done. Cool. We're going to go on lightning round because you already said your best ever advice treats as a partnership. Partnership. Yeah. So think of the bank as your partner. Cool. First, quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at EntrepreneurDrinks.com. That's EntrepreneurDrinks.com. All right, first question, what's the best of a way you like to keep up to date with what's going on in your industry? I meet a lot with real estate brokers and loan brokers. To me, that's both. I need to know what's available in the lending markets. Over 20 plus years, you know a lot of lenders at a lot of banks, so you kind of you know, can keep up just by meeting with them with what they're doing. Uh, the loan brokers tend to know not only what the banks and the credit unions are doing, but what the life companies and the Fannie, Freddie programs and all the other types of uh, financing sources are. So I want to know what's going on there. I also, from a real estate perspective, what are the hot areas, what are the new projects that are maybe under consideration but haven't hit the business courier or some other public? Because once it's hit that, I'm, you know, it's too late. That's six months too late. How is knowing where the hot area is helpful for you as a... Finding out who owns the property, I can dig and find that myself and, and making those calls and, and trying to find out what's going on. Making the call for... To what? the developer to see what their plans may be. Hey, I see you've purchased some property in Silverton. I pass on the way in High Grain Brewing and there's probably some new multifamily just down the hill on Stewart. Understanding neighborhoods that maybe are in the midst of change. I'm in Greater Cincinnati, but Greater Cincinnati is a gigantic place. My office is in Butler County, and I can't possibly always know what's going on in every neighborhood and, and maybe what 
is planned, what local municipalities are planning to do with land and what those developers, who they are, who, what they're planning to do. So that's a challenge. A lot of times the real estate brokers, so the, the folks at the CBREs and the Colliers and, and those places tend to have an inkling of what's going on before it hits the publications and that's when you want to be checking into that because again once you've read it in the business courier they're already six months down the road on getting their financing in place best ever way you like to give back to the community mm. I could do a better job of that that ties into the book I just finished halftime I'm probably more in the middle of the third quarter than halftime at this point but kind of that point where you get to how do you give back more and, and how do you get to a point where you're doing what you want to do more than what you need to do to pay bills and, and that kind of thing. But just really a mindset kind of change. But I'm on a, a local not-for-profit board. It's a very small, but sometimes you just can't do everything. I still have four kids at home and a couple in college, so I do that. Do I wish I could do more? Sure. And I think my mind, uh, I'm starting to wrap around, I need to. It's just the how I haven't mastered yet. And the best way the listeners can get in touch with you, learn more about what you're doing. Yeah, that would be tough trying to find it online and probably even more difficult. You know, U.S. Bank's a big bank. All the smaller banks you might see about us and actually be able to click on people. U.S. Bank's got 70,000 employees and a lot here in Cincinnati, so it's not so much personalized and individualized. I have business cards I'm happy to pass out. I do a lot of emailing because I can't be everywhere at once. Um, do you want to mention your email? Yes. Okay, sure. Michael, uh, M-I-C-H-A-E-L dot Shabline, S-C-H-A-B-L-E-I-N at usbank.com. Well, thanks so much for hanging out with us, and then we'll open it up to you. spared me the Antonio Brown question. I wasn't going to answer those anyway. <laughs> I know what you're talking about, but I have no idea the context there. Um, let's do it. Let's it. Let me paint a uh, lending scenario. And this is multifamily. Yeah. So I say I'm an existing borrower, current on all my payments. The various multifamily properties are performing. Liquidity is okay, but when you review the debt service coverage ratio, I missed badly. I missed by 15 or 20 percent. So that's a violation. What's your thought process, or what would cause you to call the loan versus waive it? Well, one, we generally don't call loans. You may end up being monitored by somebody else other than me if they feel it's a problem that's systemic it's not going to go away you know I guess what I would question is you say you're performing well but you're missing your debt service why would that be maybe I went a little too aggressive with the purchasing and, and things are let's say for example not fully renovated so we get a situation we still... see all the time what we see a lot is a property is performing and then a year it would be embarrassing if I didn't know why for a full year and then found out after the fact. But a lot of times you'll get that next set of financials and all of a sudden your repair and maintenance expense is way up. What the heck happened? Well, yeah, I went ahead and renovated five units. Great. Okay, you didn't ask me for the money. You did it out a year. But you drove your expenses up and your accountant decided they'd rather expense it than capitalize it. Or maybe there were certain things that couldn't be capitalized. We can get our arms around that, right? That's a one-time thing. Hey, I, this is what I did. I put my money back into the property. 
here's how much I spent. I'll normalize the underwriting and say, well, had you not spent that $30,000, you would have hit your debt service coverage just fine. I can do that. But I guess what I'll struggle with is this scenario I painted for you before where, well, I have a lot of properties and I travel to them a lot and I put all my personal expenses on the schedule for the, that's something that, that I may know what you're doing, but that's not necessarily an acceptable answer from not hitting your debt service coverage. So you're either going to change the way you're doing that, or we're probably going to have an issue, and it's probably going to end up where somebody else monitors that account until it matures. And then our recourse at that point is just to tell you we're not going to renew the loan. And that gives you a chance to shop that elsewhere. But again, as long as we can understand why and underwrite it and normalize it, a lot of times that's what it is. Hey, well, I went ahead and put money back into the property. Okay, great. Uh, Michael, uh, and you I'm, look familiar. I've got a deal with you on Gordon Smith, brother. You made it very easy. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's the one time I made it easy. Yeah. <laughs> I've been told that U.S. Bank has a stress test that you would that any time you go to underwriter, they factor a 10% vacancy and credit loss. Is that accurate? We have what they want to call a minimum vacancy. So, say you're in a market that CBRE says. Pleasant Ridge, the multifamily vacancy right now is 3%. Our policy may say the minimum of 5% or market vacancy, the minimum. So we'll use 5% even though the market's 3 Now conversely, say it's 10, but we're not going to use 5, we're going to use the 10, the actual. So it's always going to be a minimum of 5, sometimes the actual may be less than that, but I mean, if that's really causing so a deal to not work, yeah. Uh, management fee, we're going to use 4% as a minimum. Now, if you're paying somebody 7, well, then we're going to use 7. But if you're paying somebody 2, we're going to use 4. So there are a couple things like that, but honestly, the rest of it's really based on historical. So, as far as the debt coverage ratio goes, depending on how you structure the loan, I'm assuming your payments are going to be different, right? So if it's an interest-only loan, it may be a little bit lower of a monthly payment. If the term length is longer over a period of time, you pay less. Also, the amortization, if it's 15-year versus 20-year versus 25-year, that payment's going to be different. So do you work with investors to structure a loan in order to make the numbers work? Or yeah, how so that's a good question. We have what's called a sizing tool. So we actually size the loan based on a constant, and that constant will won't involve interest only. Your payment may be interest only, but we're going to size that if it was a P&I payment based on a, a certain interest rate and a certain amortization. So if the loan sizes to that and you do an interest only payment, you're going to be fine, right? Because you're interest only and we're we're basing our loan size on a P&I payment. Having said that, where that comes back to haunt us sometimes, that sizing constant may be a little more conservative than what the actual debt service of the property is. So our sizing may say, well, this only supports a $5 million loan, but the actual debt service would size a $5.5 million loan. Well, somebody's going to underwrite into the $5.5 million loan, and we're stuck at $5 million, and that becomes a competitive issue. I'm looking at the properties that are on the MLS and just go on the website and see if it's really is there a similar website company that does that for Bose? Kind of uh, just an issue that shows like the path across Cincinnati on where commercial 
I can't really speak to the residential. Commercial loans, I'd say your best source of information on commercial loans, because every bank's a little different. There is no heat map that shows Vista Bank closed this loan for a quarter of a million here, and U.S. Bank did this one here. It's really auditor sites, recorder sites. You can find who's filing mortgages, and then obviously on auditor sites, if you know particular areas of properties, you can see who's bought them, who's transacted. So if I have a smaller multi-unit property, a four unit, and it's in an LLC, and I like to do a HELOC on that, how would I go about doing that? It is a good question. When you have the one to four family properties, now I know residential lenders can do multifamily four units unless they're owned in your name. I think the LLC throws that out of the residential financing picture. On the commercial side, most larger banks don't like HELOCs on investment properties. Number one, they generally limit the term. If they were going to do one, they generally would be a year or two years. So every year or two, we're having to get a new valuation on the property and new loan documents and things like that. Um, I'd say we generally will prefer a term note. If it's a one-time need, we'd rather see that than kind of a floating checkbook on an investment property. Now, having said that, if it's a very low loan-to-value property, if, if it's a 30, 40, 50% loan-to-value, we would consider a HELOC. But again, I think the trade-off is you're probably going to have a shorter term than a term loan, and every couple of years you're going to get that paper cut of cost with an updated valuation and title update and loan documents and that kind of thing. Assuming that the HELOC did happen, what would be a case where that one-time need could make sense to the bank? What would that one-time need be? Well, big ticket items, so depending on if it's a four unit, maybe it's I already have two empties and the other two, I'm just going to let them walk at the end of their term and I'm going to redo the kitchens and the bathrooms in these units and I'm going to bump the rents and we'll underwrite it to the performa, things like that. That would make sense on a one-time basis. If you own a bigger property and you're, hey, I've got 10 buildings on this property and I got new roofs or I'm going to redo all the parking lots. That's more of a term note thing than a line of credit. Line of credit thing is, hey, I've owned this property 20 years and I've paid my loan down or paid it off. And I just want to have something in the event I decide three years from now I'm going to put new roofs on it or, or do that. Then we would look at it more of a HELOC situation, but not where, hey, I'm at 75% LTV and I want to get every bit of equity I have to have this just in case something comes up. That's when we're looking at, well, yeah, but that's kind of what we're looking at your liquidity for, the reserve. That makes sense. And also, can you repeat your email? Sorry, Sure. Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, period, Shabelein, S-C-H-A-B-L-E-I-N, at usbank.com. So if you were to uh, analyze a deal, this is family, whatever you want to call it. Did the numbers on that, it was basically a no-brainer slam dunk deal for getting the Pick that same property up, put it in the flood zone, and even with the uh, cost of flood insurance on top of that, the numbers were pretty much the same. How would you look at that? I have, I have some properties that require flood insurance. 
the flood maps change too. Maybe in the flood zone two years from now, it wasn't when we did the loan. You don't know, but yes, we have a very dedicated group of folks that only monitor flood mapping. So if something like that comes up during the term and it wasn't in a flood zone, we'll get a notification, you'll get a letter, and it gives you X amount of time to get that in place. But as far as underwriting goes, I'm not going to say no to the property because it's in a flood zone. If it works and you have the proper flood insurance in place and it still cash flows, we will be able to. You just compared apples to apples at the same place. On high ground and flood zone. I don't, the yeah, I don't, look at, I don't look at the deal differently. Okay. I set the bar high. So let's see what you got. Well, a couple questions. I'm a buy and hold investor. I'm relatively new to commercial. Everything until recently has been four units or fewer. My understanding is that U.S. Bank, as a commercial lender on real estate, has a reputation of being very picky about what they will and won't write on. But if they decide they want to write on the property, they're going to blow everyone out of the water with the terms that they're willing to write on. What's your perspective on that reputation? Does that seem to hold true? I don't true have to that you? same perspective. Um, I would say, in fairness, our box is smaller than a lot of financial institutions. And not because we're picky about the types of property so much, it's that our underwriting terms, I could tell you from the day I started 13 years ago to today, haven't changed hardly at all. Whereas a lot of banks late, leading up to 2007-8, when things really went sideways, there was a lot of aggression out there. A lot of banks pulled back until about 2012-13, and it heated up again. And right now, it's the Wild West out there. It is definitely a borrower's market for getting aggressive terms. Our terms haven't changed. so. On multifamily, we'll do up to a 10-year term, but on all our other commercial types, you can give me a Walgreens 15-year lease. It's going to be a five-year term. So it can renew, but our terms are very conservative. So that makes our box small, not that we're picky about what type of property it is. Conservative in a small box, but not picky. Okay, so if we experience a market shift and all of a sudden it gets a lot harder to get loans on our properties, would you expect that U.S. Bank would, in a market like that, end up feeling more aggressive than other lenders? Yes. Again, when I came over, it was just at the start of the crash, and from about 2009 through maybe 13, 14, was the most business I've ever done in commercial real estate, and that's because everybody else pulled back. We weren't doing anything differently. We weren't offering any better terms, different terms, the same stuff just wasn't any competition. Now everybody's out there, so it's challenging, but again, we're not doing anything different. It's just everybody else is really going after it. Last one, and then we'll wrap up. Do you invest in real estate personally, and if so, what do you do? Well, answer is no. My fifth third days, 99 through 07, there was actually a rule within the commercial real estate group we couldn't invest and lend at the same time. You know, Number one, they didn't want any clouding of, of thinking. Number two, they didn't want that to be your day job instead of the commercial lending aspect of it. U.S. Bank doesn't necessarily have that same role. What's precluded me is four kids, two in college, a lot of other things going on right now. Would I invest in real estate? Absolutely, but it's just not the right time yet. Mike, thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it.
When it's Friday at 4.30 p.m., it's time for Entrepreneur Drinks Podcast, which is co-produced by Joint Ops Properties and Discount Property Investors. Join their end-of-the-work-week session as they tackle problems facing entrepreneurs. Listen and subscribe at entrepreneurdrinks.com. That's entrepreneurdrinks.com. Best ever listeners, go to bec20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, bec20.com.